0: Welcome back to the Real Voices of the Game production. As we mentioned on our past shows, we had a a nice evolution with our project here. Our podcast network has grown from one flagship show, Coach and Kernan, to now six shows. And today I present you a day at the yard, Common Sense Pitching with Wiley and Will. It's episode 103. Uh, We've started last May. We're already up to 103. Quick note to our faithful listeners here, and then I'll turn it over to Wiley and Will. To our 9,500 faithful subscribers now. Just want to remind you download, listen, like, and subscribe. It takes two seconds, but it helps us record and give accurate numbers to our podcast network. It helps keep us continuing to present you with great ad free, sponsor free content, helping build better baseball IQs. Mm -hmm. And on that note, now, we do make sure that we keep it ad free and sponsor free, so it's straight content. So, In order to support our two hosts here, Wiley and Will, Mark Wiley and Will George, please make sure that you go to patreon.com and under the Day at the Yard, if you like the show and you want to see it continue, give the quality effort they've given, don't be afraid to donate to to Wiley and Will on patreon.com. So with that, Mark Wiley, I turn it over to you to introduce our great guest today.
1: All right. I'm very excited to introduce one of my better friends in the game. Um, Sean Cunningham, has. we worked together with the Marlins uh, when I was the pitching coach there and also when I was a special assistant to the general manager. Um, Sean has a lot of ca- uh, certifications and, and affiliations. Uh, he's been an adjunct professor, clinical preceptor. He's licensed. He's a National Athletic Trainers Association member, National Strength and Conditioning Association member, state of Florida licensed athletic trainer. Uh, CPR, uh, AED certified, Professional Athletic Trainers Association. Um, Sean has been uh, over 30 years in professional baseball. Uh, His education was a Bachelor of Science of Physical Education in Sports Science from uh, uh, Canisius College. I guess that's how you pronounce it. Is that right, Sean?
2: Canisius College. Canisius. Mm
1: -hmm. Sorry. I've never been very good. Come on, Mark. Uh, And a 94 master's degree in exercise science from Florida Atlantic University. Uh, Sean's been published twice in the American Orthopedic Society of Sports Medicine in 2012. Um, In his 30 years, um, he's been predominantly with the Montreal Expos in Florida slash Miami Marlins. In 87 to 90, he was a minor league trainer in the Montreal Expos organization uh, right out of college. In in 1991 to 2001, he was uh, the athletic trainer, uh, strength and conditioning coach, and director of travel. He wore like three major hats with a major league organization. Not too many guys have ever done that. You might be the only guy. Um, in 2002 oh, to 2016, uh, he was with the Florida slash Miami Marlins as a head trainer. In 2019 to the present, he's he's been an athletic trainer um, and teacher at Palm Beach Atlanta, uh, Atlantic University. Um, as far as his baseball career goes, um, in 2003, he was a member of the uh, World Championship, uh, Ma- uh, Florida Marlins as the trainer. 2010, he was named National League All-Star trainer. 2017, he was the head coach. He was the head trainer for Puerto Rican national team in the World Baseball Classic. Uh, in 2022, he was the head trainer for the Brazilian national team in the qualifier round. And uh, this year, he's he's back with Puerto Rico. Uh, as a trainer in the World Classic when it begins here shortly. Um, Sean's a good, uh, he's a great friend and a really good baseball man. And you see now he's got a background, not only 30 years in professional baseball, but now he's in the university system. Uh, Welcome, Sean. And it's really great to have you with us. I think you're going to give us some insights that other people wouldn't be able to.
2: Well, thanks, thanks, Mark, for inviting me on the show, and I certainly, uh, certainly, always enjoy the time that we get together and and have conversation about baseball and just uh, some of the things that we've been through together because we certainly have a lot of stories. And uh, uh, you know, as you went through my long, long list of credentials, I think, uh, I think all you really determined was that I'm old. <laughs> um, I've been doing this a while, so, uh, but I love, I love doing it.
1: I can tell you that the, between you and Will, um, I spend hours on the phone with you guys. We've, re, we've redone baseball from start to finish with our comments, things we like, things we don't like. Uh, we always bring up stuff we've seen, uh, keep abreast of, of what's going on with the heartbeat of baseball. So anyway, it's great to have you on. And, you know, my first question is when you were wearing all those hats with the Montreal Expos, uh, how did you balance all that? I mean that's fucking <laughs> amazing. I, like I said, I don't think anybody's ever done all of them. Well,
3: well,
2: to, to, I I I I can't tell you for certain, but I can pretty much guarantee that no one's uh, uh, no one's done all of them. It was uh, it was you know the Montreal Expos had a way of of being on the cutting edge of different things. A lot of that was just a a, a means of trying to combine a couple positions and uh, uh try to get their um, you know try to get their uh. Uh, you know, a, a, as much bang for their buck as they could. But uh, so, so I ended up being, as you said, traveling secretary and, and strength and conditioning coach. My background, I had been promoted in the minor leagues from being a, a minor league medical coordinator. And so my passion was strength, uh, was uh, athletic training. I had a strength and conditioning background. Uh, and so, and th- they saw that as a means of bringing me to the major leagues after the strike, uh, they had kind of phased away their traveling secretary position and they were trying to figure out how to to reinsert someone into that role. And uh, it was it took a lot of discipline. You know, when you sit there and and take a look at, uh, uh, you know, organizing from a traveling secretary, there are two full time positions. I mean, and nowadays they have a lot of teams have a, a, a traveling secretary, an assistant traveling secretary, and a lot of times they have a secretary. Uh, and then, the strength and conditioning pro, uh, 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 organizations, most teams now have two strength coaches. And so at the time I was doing all of that and it was, it was really a matter of being disciplined. I really had to compartmentalize my days. Um, I would go in in the morning and do all my traveling secretary stuff, knowing that the players would start to arrive around one or one thirty, And then I would put the, condi- uh, strength and conditioning hat on and go through that, um, you know, through all the pregame stuff. And then once the game started, I would continue with that, depending on exactly what was going on, continuing in that strength and conditioning role, or I might pick up and do some some traveling secretary duties that had popped up since I had kind of taken that hot hat off at 1 o'clock. And for me, one of the hardest things was I would be out stretching the guys, stretching the guys, going through our team stretch at, 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 at uh, 4 o'clock, and a, and a player would say, oh, oh! by the way, Sean, I need, I need two rooms in Cincinnati. I need one room coming in on the 16th, the other room coming in on the 17th, because that was when he saw me. So he, he, he would recognize his, as he's in the team stretch or doing some strength and conditioning stuff, he would recognize what his traveling secretary needs would be. And I had to just try and commit it to memory and then go write it down as soon as I could Uh, because most people at that time, you know, back in the late 90s, they were just starting to text, um, but they'd forget to text. And there was nothing worse, nothing worse for a traveling secretary than as that plane is landing in the next city on travel day and you're landing and a a player comes up to you and says, oh, oh, by the way, I need an extra room in the hotel. We're going to check in at two o'clock in the morning. (laughs) And invariably that would happen. So it, it was, it was a, a matter of just trying to be disciplined. I loved reminders because I, uh, uh, players, oh, I, I know I've already told you once, but, and I, I loved having that happen. Uh, it was really, um, beneficial from the standpoint of establishing trust with the players as a, as an athletic trainer and as a strength and conditioning coach. Cause at the end of the day, they needed, they needed me for their traveling secretary needs as well. So it was, uh, it, you know, it was a lot of hats and it was busy. But for me, it was a way to get to the big leagues. So I didn't I didn't hesitate taking the job.
1: No, I'm sure you were really good at it. They were kind of on a shoestring up there at Montreal until the Major League Baseball like bought it. Um, but uh, interesting. You, would,
2: uh, you know, I hated I hated the travel days. Uh, because, you know, as a traveling secretary, one of the hardest things is you're so dependent on other people doing their job. You're dependent on the, the airline and the plane uh, people, logistics people getting the plane. You're, you're dependent on the weather, uh, uh, facilitating or enabling that plane to land on time. These planes don't make, the airlines and the planes don't make money uh, sitting on the ground. So they would always like to kind of time the Time, knowing that it was a one o'clock game, they would plan. You know, the game's going to end at four o'clock. You're going to leave for the airport at five, so they're going to be there around five thirty. So we're going to land around four thirty. And as long as they were on time, everything was usually went goes goes off kind of without a uh, without a, a click. Uh, but the travel for for these major league players is so st- so strenuous as it is that they really liked everything to be on time. And for me, uh, you know, it, invariably. Pedro Martinez would be pitching on getaway day, and instead of a three-hour game, he'd, he'd throw a two-hour masterpiece, and everybody would be everyone would be in the clubhouse at three o'clock after the game, getting ready to shower and change and get on the flight. And there wouldn't be a plane in town yet because Pe- Pedro had worked his magic.
1: Wow! Yeah, you had yeah you had to go through customs
2: too customs coming and going was, was 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 always an adventure i mean they've got a job to do and and uh uh you know they're you know it, you know the players and it's it's something about customs is that there were times that everybody could clear customs in 15 minutes and there were times that they would be a little bit more uh a little bit more investigative or, 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 or diligent with what they were doing and what they were looking for, and the process would take because it might be different people doing it too, and the process would take longer. And the, the players never understood. Well, if we can do this in 15 minutes this t- today, why can't we do it in 15 minutes every time? And it, it just just didn't work that way. Um, <laughs> and, and you know, you never knew if a customs customs person had a uh, uh, had a bad day. Uh, or, or had something going on, then they were they were going to be a little bit more deliberate with it. And and the one thing is they're they're they offic- you know they're government officials and, and, and police officials. And as a result of that, uh, you you couldn't you know if, you, if if you gave them any sort of attitude, you d- you didn't know how that would be responded to. So it was really important for the players not to do that. And so it was a it was a fine uh, a fine uh, a, a delicate mess. Uh, on a regular basis as far, as far as just trying to navigate all of that, keeping everybody happy, making sure no one said the wrong thing, and just kind of keep the whole hurting the, hurting the group and keeping them moving in the right direction. I, I, I hated going through, as a traveling secretary, I always hated going through the airport because there would be a duty free. And so then the, player, the, the, the players would start to to shop, so to speak. And in their shopping, you know, all of a sudden it's you know you know you're trying to herd people and keep them moving, and they're they're being distracted and not going and going with the flow of the rest of the rest of the herd.
1: Amazing, amazing. <laughs> wow. Well, Let's just shift. We'll shift a little bit to your professional training. Um, what area do you feel that pitchers should spend more time on to help their durability and limit injuries? Then. Than- <laughs> <laughs> oh that's a that's a that's a
2: loaded question uh, there, there, one area <laughs> and you know the 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 thing about injury prevention from my perspective as you go through it there's so many things that are important and so many components that are involved and it involves muscle strength it invo- involves muscle endurance. Uh, What, you know, rotator cuff, where's your rotator cuff strength at? Your scapular stabilization in the shoulder? What type of arm care and prehab and preventative type of work are you doing? What's your conditioning level? If you're out of shape, um, you, you know, that could lead to injury if you're out of shape or getting fatigued. Well, where's your core stability, uh, at, uh, as far as balance and throwing, all of that is, is founded on, on what your core stability is, is, is going to help to dictate your ability to repeat mechanics and repeat delivery. Um, uh, how, how is the individual's ability to pro, uh, modify their program and adjust what's going on by how their body's feeling? Um, it, you know, all of these are so important, uh, but, but, to me, one of the biggest things is if you were to ask me to pinpoint one thing, um, it, it's where does recovery fit in? And so many people are under the impression that a lot of the injuries that we see in baseball are overuse type injuries. And and that revolves around, one, doing too much, and two, are we allowing for recovery? And and other components that come into recovery are nutrition and sleep habits and the travel, so there's so many things that come into play and if you ignore one component, all you have to do is i I just listed probably ten different items or twelve different items and and there are and there are more if if you're just off base on one of those items, that could lead to injury and and as a result of that, you have to be disciplined in every area you have to uh, be have a complete program. Be paying attention to everything because if you're negligent in any one area, it could be a problem. Recovery is critical, and and more and more is being done uh, about workloads and recovery uh, from a research standpoint. That's helping with that, um, but it's probably the most overlooked thing, whether it be in a professional baseball uh, college baseball, youth baseball, you've got year round baseball going on. Um, and, you know, we sit there for the major league players and so many times, this, you know, the season ends in, in late October for the, for the lucky people, but in early October, um, and, and we tell those guys to go home and, 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 and not pick up a ball for, for you know the whole month of October and into November, and then start playing catch in at the end of November. Start their long toss toward the end of December, and start their mound progression in January. But we're telling them to take a full sixty-eight weeks off from throwing. And when you get into these colleges where their their season goes from February until the end of uh, end of April, and then right away they start their uh, uh, summer. Uh, pitching in, in June, May, June, and July, and then as soon as that ends, they're right back into their fall college season in August, and these guys throw in August, September, October, November. They might take a little bit of a break over the Christmas holidays, but they can't take too much of a break because it goes right back into their season. And so they never were worth telling or advising these major league professional pitchers and men to take six to eight weeks off from throwing, the college and the youth kids just aren't get never take that eight week break and there's no recovery and there's no no doubt that that's probably the number one factor
0: with with the injuries that you see. Sean, how much of it's throwing improperly too? I know we're talking strength conditioning, but you're I mean you're an expert in body movements. These kids are throwing a lot, but this does some of that have to do with or how much do you think it has to do with throwing improperly as well?
2: Oh, there's no, there's no question that plays into it, and that's just another one of the components. And and that's where when you start talking about throwing mechanics, you need to have proper throwing mechanics. Uh, you need to have some sort of progression of what you're throwing. I've seen so many people that 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 go right go right out. I remember one time we had a pitcher that wanted to wanted to develop a new changeup, and that was what he was going to develop. And he was pitching on the backfield in spring training. And and he threw a changeup and it was good. And so he threw another changeup and it was good. And so he threw another change. And he proceeded to throw twelve of his seventeen pitches were changeups because it was so good. And the guy ended up with a sore elbow because he was over pronating on that changeup. He was getting great movement, but he was over pronating or getting out over the wrist and turning that wrist over too much, which was putting pressure on the inside of his elbow, and he strained a muscle. So there, there's no doubt that volume of what you're throwing is going to play into injury and 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 poor mechanics is going to or your inability to repeat your mechanics is going to play into injury.
0: I, I like that. Go ahead, Mark.
1: Go ahead. You...
0: I was going to ask as far as the, just a follow up as these these young kids grow into college kids and move into the professional ranks, those that are lucky, they're asking professional pitchers now to barely go five innings. Does their training that that would be applied to their pitching get adjusted to create the five inning pitcher? I mean, where do the two meet in the middle? Well,
2: that 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 is the uh, that's a million dollar question right now. You know you you talk to the old school people and and you know again, when you start talking about basic training principles of progression, uh, if you if you have someone throw five innings, throw five innings, throw five innings, throw five innings, and then you have them go in, you know, whatever, 70 pitches or 75 or 80 pitches or whatever it might be. And then all of a sudden he's asked to go out and throw eight innings in one hundred and twenty and there's a big jump that's going to increase your risk of risk of injury. If you're if you're talking about somebody that's throwing uh, you know, it, it's what are you training to? And this is a big debate going on that you can't have these people throw five innings and then expect them to throw uh, uh, throw uh, eight, eight innings. And what happens? And 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 the reality is that it doesn't necessarily translate to injury, but it certainly increases the risk of injury. So when you start start talking about training, so much of the strength and conditioning for years, strength and conditioning was 100% frowned upon like I said when 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 I took over as the head strength coach up in Montreal in 1997 I I I was essentially I replaced a a strength coach that was a a university professor and a strength coach had a long but he was he was he was a part-time strength coach he was only a coach at home because his real Although he certainly was a good strength coach, his real profession was he was a university professor, and so his his job was was in Montreal. And then what he would do is he would he would be their strength and conditioning coach at home, but not on the road. So in in Montreal wasn't the uh, you know not every organization in the late '90s even had a strength coach. When I started, most of the the, the philosophy behind it was because it was still frowned upon by the old school, and I. You know, you didn't see me use my air quotes here, but the old school people uh, frowned upon the uh, strength and conditioning because they thought it was going to lead to injury. So the initial, the initial uh, uh, thought or philosophy behind strength and conditioning was we're going to do this for injury prevention. And then what's gradually, um, gradually uh, evolved over time is that now there's certainly a need for strength and conditioning from an injury prevention, but there's also very much a sport performance. Uh, component to it. And that sport performance means that you, you know, uh, from, a uh, you know, one of the, again, basic principles of, of strength and conditioning is the said principle, which is a specific adaptation to impose demands. It's an acronym. And basically it means that the only way you're going to get stronger is by overloading the muscle and making the body, body get stronger to meet that overload. Uh, but with overload comes an increase in, in risk of injury. So when you start talking about these guys that are throwing five innings, is is that contribu- the ability to not throw eight innings or, or not go deeper enable you to throw harder for a shorter time frame? And the answer to that is, yes to some degree or to some extent and then the other thing that happens is that you're able because you're only throwing five innings and maybe 75 80 85 90 pitches you've got the ability to train harder in between starts from a sport performance standpoint because to go 160 or 162 games in a 6 months or 180 days and not lift weights isn't practical and isn't productive But by the same token, if you're not monitoring that workload through that six months, you're going to, again, you're going to predispose yourself to some sort of breakdown and injury as well. Great. So, Will, go
0: ahead.
3: Yeah, Sean, uh, thanks for coming on and uh, just, you know, being an old school guy and still being involved. And I watch at the minor league level, we talk about that five inning threshold. Uh, We talk about relievers that throw one inning twice a week and then all of a sudden they get to the big leagues and their managers are demanding a lot more. So we're really never training. It's like running a few sprints to do a marathon. We're never actually training to do what we're doing in our effort. I think for me to play God and prevent injuries, we're actually hurting players in the long run because of the way they're being used at the big league level they've never trained to be used properly at the big league level
2: oh 100 what will 100% i couldn't agree with that more it drives me nuts And of course, I'm not in professional baseball anymore, but it would drive me nuts toward the end of my career. And even now to see these, you know, you know, my son was a, a, a baseball player and played in the minor leagues for a couple of years. And I would see some of his friends that he came up with that had been drafted and were playing in the minor leagues. And I would look up to see how they were doing. And it would absolutely drive me nuts to see that he threw through an inning on Tuesday, through an inning on Friday, through an inning on Tuesday, through an inning on Friday, yeah. uh, and and was throwing twice a week or three times a week, no more as a relief pitcher, no more than two or three innings total for the week, knowing that the minute this guy gets to the major leagues, they're going to use him completely different, and he's not going to be trained to be used, and he's putting up great numbers because. They're maximizing rest. They're maximizing recovery, but but he's not he's not being trained to pitch in the big leagues. He's being trained to pitch twice a week, which isn't which isn't how they're used, uh, flat out not. And that's going to increase their risk of injury. And there's no question that that happens with these uh, uh, with these. And I want to be very careful because you don't want to generalize with the with the whole industry. But what happens is these guys, and, and there there is a much uh, clearer focus on on rest and recovery at the major league probably now than there was ten years ago, uh, where people are getting rest. I mean, you never never used to see a closer down ten years ago. The closer was pitching every day if that was four days in a row or five days in a row. So there have been some adjustments that have been made with that. But but having said that. Um, they're not being trained to pitch three days in a row in the minor leagues. They're just not. And if they get called to the big leagues and they pitch three days at the major league level, that's going they're not trained to do that. And that will that will increase the risk of in- injury and ultimately lead to injury.
3: Right,
1: yeah. Well, you know, I think that sometimes we can go back and you can – the best people to look at are obviously the best pitchers and the guys that are the most durable, the guys that have the longest careers – analyzing what they do, watch them. I think the good young players watch those guys. They learn from them, how they take care of themselves, the things they do. Now, you've had some of the best pitchers in baseball over your 10 years of Major League uh, trainer. You've had, you know, Pedro, Josh Beckett, Josh Johnson, Dontrell Willis, Fernandez. I mean, you've had some of the freaking greatest pitchers that have ever been on the mound you know, having said that, sometimes there's guys that have had long careers that weren't superstars, but they did it because they took care of themselves. Now, of all the guys you've had, who are some of the guys that had the best routines and really took an interest in the training and health aspects of their career?
2: Well, yeah, that that's an excellent question, Mark. And, and and over the years, there's been so many. And you mentioned, you know, my some of my favorites were, you know, you mentioned Pedro Martinez, and he was probably my first. He was uh he was he was just, you know, just establishing himself as a pitcher in the the mid '90s with the Expos. He had come over from the Dodgers. I, my first year there was '97, and he was he was really helpful to me because he came to me looking for a program and looking for. Uh, a, a routine for himself, and and it, it it was something that kind of set me aback because here was an established pitcher, uh, and he knew he needed to do it, but wasn't exactly sure what he needed to do. And we still we'll still have conversations about this now and then, um, but it, it really established credibility for. With me, with the rest of the the, the the pitching staff at the time, because here, if our star pitcher is going to him, he clearly must know what, he, what 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 he's doing and what's going on. And although that may or may not have been the case, um, it was it was something that that helped me to establish credibility with them. And obviously, my thoughts and my philosophies uh, were one thing in '97 and evolved and changed with time. But he was. Pedro was unbelievably disciplined with the program that we put together. And he had to be, you know, at, at that time, you know, it, it, all the pitchers were six, 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 seven, six, eight. The Dodgers got rid of him because they thought he was too small at 5'11", 175 pounds. And, and although he wasn't necessarily uh, big in stature, he was very disciplined with his conditioning, very, uh, very disciplined with his arm care. And that led to, you know, a Hall of Fame career. Uh, guys, Josh Beckett, not many people would call him disciplined as an individual or as a person necessarily, but I'll tell you what, he was disciplined with his arm care and his strength and conditioning and the, and the stuff that helped him to have the career that he had for, you know, 13, 14 years. Uh, Javi Vasquez is another, maybe a little bit less, everyone knows Javier Vasquez. He was a real good pitcher with the, uh, Expos, uh, went on and pitched with the Yankees, uh, and, uh, um, I, I, believe Philadelphia maybe, and then came back and finished up, but he had a long career, but I had him as a teenager, as a 17, 18, 19 year old kid in the minor leagues. And he was, uh, you know, he was still, he was still a boy. Uh, in all intents and purposes, and but he would come in every spring and have you know be great in the spring and great in April and be hurt by May. And part of the problem was just what we were alluding to earlier. This was a kid that was pitching in winter ball at home in the off season. And so although it was May and everyone's saying, well, we're only two months into the season for him, he was six months into the season because he had started playing winter ball in, in November. And that was how he was making his money because as a minor leaguer, he was making maybe a thousand dollars a month, but he got, we put him on a program. And again, another one that had a long career. Steve C. Uh, just retired uh, with uh, Seattle uh, is another one that jumps to mind again, a little bit. Uh, I think everyone knows him uh just cuz he had such a long career and it was just he was just he overachieved his entire career but he was unbelievably disciplined with his with his uh work you know that that's a funky arm angle we were talking about throwing mechanics earlier it was a funky arm angle but he figured out what he needed to do for himself he, we we he he had a had himself a customized program and he was somebody that 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 took his his strength and conditioning and his his physical preparation uh, to to heart every day, and as a result of that he ended up as a relief pitcher had a had a very long career
1: and yeah, that's great those are great insights and that you know it doesn't have to be i mean brian moeller it was a it was a so you know we had him with the Marlins and he was so dedicated um you know there's guys that have long careers you look at those guys too, even if they don't have like incredible hall of fame stuff. They almost they knew what they were, but they also knew the value of conditioning. Um, of of all the players, you know, you've you've uh, you've had to rehab a lot of injured players, and uh, you know some injuries are uh, player and pitcher are are uh, are harder to rehab than others. You know, where do you see? You know, for a pitcher, this might go into you know. Uh, when you're rehabbing them, you know, maybe you could have prevented it if they they stuck with, with a better routine on a certain area of their body. What do you have on that?
2: Yeah, well, yeah, there's no question. The, the area that I, Mark, the area that I always hated to see were, were back's. Because it was something that was that that's universal. It didn't matter if it was a pitcher. It didn't matter if it was a position player. Backs are 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 always very very complicated with all the rotational forces that we have. Whether you're hitting or whether you're pitching, uh, uh, it affects your ability to condition. If you've got a back injury, uh, discs are never never quite the same. If you if you end up with a disc you know disc bulge or a disc herniation, you know you strengthen up the area around it. Uh, But that the exercises and the rehab that you do for a back are boring, tedious exercises. And so I might have a guy that's got a sore back, uh, comes in, we do an MRI, the MRI might show that he's got a little bit of a bulge with it, you know, and, and of course, everybody's got Everyone's got the discs changed just with age and with time and with wear and tear. It's a naturally, naturally occurring process. So we would put him on a core stabilization program. He'd be feeling better. Uh, and then all of a sudden, he'd come in one day and say, hey, Sean, my back's really stiff again. Invariably, I'd say, well, when was the last time you did your exercises? Oh, about, about two weeks ago. Because the exercises for the back are so boring and so tedious that even when they're working, if the guy, if your back starts to feel better, human nature will then say, oh, you know, I don't have to do these quite as often or, or be quite as diligent with it. And what ends up happening with backs, and this is the, the, the other other component to it that, that plays in, is that so often it's, it's everything you're doing away from the field is going to affect that as well. I mean, I I, 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 I used to hate off days because they'd come, you, they, they, the player would come in after an off day, and they'd be more stiff or more sore. How come? Well, we had an off day in DC, and we walked around the, you know, we walked around the, uh, uh um, uh, the, you know, the monuments and the Smithsonian and the museums all day. And so all of a sudden, a guy that is is trained and has a specific routine is out, you know, out pushing the stroller with the wife for, or, you know, all, all day long. And I, I don't mean that negatively, but they're just doing something. That was actually more of a load on more of a load on their back than if they had come to the stadium and gotten treatment and gotten therapy and and, and controlled all of their activities and and the things that come into play with the back were were you know you've got the travel and the buses uh, and, uh, you know different beds different pillows. Um, I'm, I'm, you know, uh, one hotel chain ha- is notorious for having super soft beds, which the players loved because they had big down pillows and comforters and, 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 you know, and, and they, you know, they turned the, you know, had a special term for the bed and it was the best thing going. And I hated those hotels because I knew that the the people that had a stiff back were going to come in with a stiff back because they were on a soft bed. Um, and, you know, again, just something that you can't, can't have zero control over, but, but plays in on a, on a daily basis and would just complicate things.
1: Wow. You know, that's, those are really good points. People never think about that stuff and all the things you guys have to deal with, you know, now that you're a university trainer and mentor to so many students, what are some of the really important things you teach our future trainers?
2: Well, a lot of them is to, to treat the individual as individuals. Um, you know, uh, uh, every athlete is different. Every injury is different. Uh, the pain, any pain, any discomfort, anything that they have going on is very real for that individual. Um, and so, a lot of it is, uh, you know, when, I, when I'm when I'm when uh, i when you know when I'm teaching or mentoring these young athletic trainers, it's. Be very aware of the individual and what their needs are and what kind of day, you know, have that compassion and that empathy for whatever they might be going through to help them get through it. Uh, so much of it is helping them to understand what's actually happening with their body. They may or may not uh, have a have a have a physical under you know, a, a physical understanding of it. And so you help them to understand what's going on with their bodies physically. If they you know from there, you really need to. Uh, um, uh, have them uh, as they pay attention to these things and, and understand that, that, that they, uh, with young trainers, a lot of times what happens is when things don't get better, a young trainer wants to blame the athlete rather than maybe identifying why it's not getting better and just identifying why it's not getting better and then how, how can we address that and fix it. And I think it's, you know, from my perspective, I, when somebody wasn't getting better, it might very well be something that the athlete is or is not doing, uh, from a compliance standpoint, but you have to be very careful that you're not blaming the athlete, but that you're restructuring or reframing the situation so that you get the athlete to be more compliant.
1: You know, it's funny from being a pitching coach, um, I, or I learned early on that, um, any, you know, really aches and pains or 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 discussions with a pitcher about something that was bothering him, um, I had to separate their personality. Uh I had to separate my relationship with them, whether it was a really good relationship or I really doubted the guy's heart or whatever. And I had to focus on the fact that uh it was the trainer's job to find out if there was really something wrong with the guy. Um, you know you get I've been in the game a long time and I remember hearing young young pitching coaches when I first started off and they they'd say oh I don't like that guy he's such a wimp he uh, you know he, yeah he complains about his elbow or his shoulder all the time you know well my my feeling is is that guys that are professional athletes usually when they do complain about that there's something going on so I always like to turn it over to the trainer.
2: 100 percent, Mark. And, and and you hit on a, a really good point there. And that's that, uh, you know, the the if, if an athletic trainer, I, I learned early, you can't call somebody a wimp, an athlete, a wimp or a baby, because if they're really hurt you've got zero credibility moving forward you can allow the coach to do that but even if when the coach is doing that it's as an athletic trainer all right let's identify with the with the very objective facts what are we seeing is there swelling is there pain what are the symptoms how are the symptoms changing with activity and how does all that play into it but i i learned that like that was probably one of my very first lessons one of the very first uh, drafts we we drafted a catcher when i was with montreal And I remember the scout calling me and saying, hey, um, you know, this guy, he says he's, you know, he complains about his knee every now and then. He was an 18-year-old kid out of high school. He complains about his knee now and then, uh, but he's just a big baby. And, you know, he just needs to be pushed. He's just being a big baby. And the best thing I did was when he came in was look at the knee, do the eval, notice the swelling, let's get an MRI. Uh, You know, again, this is stuff that we do commonplace now with almost anybody that signs. But 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 back in the uh, uh, late 80s, that wasn't the case. We did an MRI and the, and the guy had a big divot out of his uh, out of his cartilage. And so he had a major injury and had to have major knee surgery right off the bat. And the best thing I did was ignore that scout that said, oh, he's just a baby and deal with the facts of, of, of the of the symptoms and the injury.
1: Yeah, there's some amazing stuff. You know, I've been lucky to work with you and Richie Bancels and, and, and Keith Dillard with the Rockies and some of the best trainers that have ever been major league trainers. And I remember Richie one time, I had a relief pitcher, and he seemed to be getting fatigued. His arm would get fatigued, and he never said anything really hurt. So I had Richie look at him, and he found where one of his muscles had shut down because of a nerve issue. And he could, you could see it on his back to where the muscle wasn't there. It had like collapsed. And, you know, he put him on a rehab program and got him back a hundred percent, but it was freaking amazing. When, when he, she said, Mark, I want you to take a look at this. You took the guy's shirt off. and I'm standing from him and I go, you gotta be kidding me. I never would have, you know, you know, not being trained. I would have never thought that could happen like that, but it did. Hmm. You know, um, you've, You've raised three boys, um, which I will say, you know, you and your wife, Michelle, she's a teacher, as you are. Um, three fine boys, a first lieutenant in the Army, a civil engineer, and and Kyle works with the Major League Club with the Rockies. Um, what advice, I mean, they were all in athletics. What advice uh, do you have for parents? Uh, that have children that are involved in sports careers. Um,
2: well, thank you, Mark, and thank you for certainly giving uh, my wife credit. She's she's got a she's got a big uh, she played a big role in raising the kids with me being on the road as much as I was on the road in baseball. As you well as you're well aware, the the the, the wife and the the, the family structure uh, that they provide is is the only way that it makes it work. But uh, you know, as a parent um you know it's 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 it it it's it's simple advice that everyone's heard but as a parent you get you get you can get a little bit caught up in and not really see how it applies to you uh it, it's keep it fun for the kids is is, is the biggest thing you know the, the you know everybody thinks and p- pick your sport and pick your uh Pick your sport and pick your uh, age group, but they always think from the the, age, the time that they're five or six that they're going to. Uh, uh, you see, it's not uncommon that they, they think they're going to play in the NBA or the NFL or, or, or Major League Baseball, and that's just you know not how you know the the kids have to as they age they have to you know there are developmental factors that come into play, and so a lot of times their their success is is really just a matter of of their physically advanced, uh, you know, beyond whoever they're competing against. Uh, you've got kids that are constantly, our parents that are constantly pushing their kids to have them play at a higher level and play up. And, you know, and, and where there's some value in, in, in fostering development, you know, that also keeps them away from playing with their friends. They get, they have to have fun. Um, so many of these sports, I mean, I remember with, with my, you know, with the, the kid that did, uh, went on to, to play college baseball and professionally and and is with the Rockies. Now I remember, I remember coaches, uh, his football coach coming to him at nine saying, well, he's, he's got to make a choice between football and and baseball. And it was like, you know, no, you know, he's going to do what he wants to do. Um, And, you know, again, when uh, uh, so, so many of these sports are year round uh, everywhere, not just in the South anymore, but everywhere. And all I can suggest is, is keep your, keep your child well-versed, let them play what he enjoys playing, uh, make sure that they're having fun, uh, and, and, you know, just simple stuff. They're kids, and, and, and such a small percentage of them go on to play collegiate ball, let alone professional, and, again, pick your sport. Um, and so it's really important that they're having fun and that they're, that, that, that they're enjoying the social aspect of sports, uh, all of the life lessons that come with sports, uh, doing more than one sport's good because the the uh, you know you know the 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 baseball player now isn't isn't going to may not have a, have the ability to play baseball at forty, but maybe he's going to have the ability to play uh, play tennis or play you know uh, pickleball or tennis or basketball or pick your other sport. So I think the more they do as kids, the better. And I think as parents, we just need to kind of keep everything in perspective and not add to the stress uh, that goes on with, with, with thinking that you've got the next superstar.
1: Yeah. That's kind of a common thread on our show of all our guests. They all say that, you know, they like to see the kids play multiple sports, you know, not get so train oriented on one, on one track. And, uh, uh I, I really appreciate your comments. I've got one last question. And uh, I've asked a few people, because I've been around people that have been on that team in 2003 with the Marlins World Championship team, um, to you, what made that team so special? Because they had a lot of young guys. They were not even supposed to be on the same field with the New York Yankees, uh, who were, as you know, was such a powerhouse during that time.
2: Well, I, you know what, it's, I still, I get chills thinking, you know, you bring it up and I chill just went through my body thinking about that team. Um, It was, it was so much, you know, so much fun, you know, breeding win uh, winning breeds that, that uh, fun. Um, You know, everybody, everybody, you know, they, they, they didn't get along all the time, but they got, they got along. Everybody was pulling. It was just such a, a mix and it was the right mix. Everybody uh, was pulling in the same direction. When Jack came in, he he made it. You know, he made he his thing that he would constantly say. Jack McKeon, our manager that uh, uh, came on in the middle of May that year, uh, uh, you know, just came on and said, "Hey, we need to check our egos at the door, and uh, and and we're playing as a team. And you know, this team's got a chance to win." He was the first one to really believe it, but but hold the players accountable for. Uh, Hey, guys, we got to win. We're here. This is, you know, we're good enough to win, but we need to win. And it was such a it was a it was a really weird mix of players in the sense that the position players were men. Um, They had been they had been they had, you know, they had uh, were a lot of them were obtained in trades after the 97 uh, sell off at World Series and sell off. And, and they had taken lumps the, the Derek Lee at first the Louis Castillo at second Alex Gonzalez at short Michael Lowell at third um, and and they had uh, and and they- Bottom line was that they they had took lumps and they were bad in the ninety eight ninety nine but now all of a sudden they, they they were coming into their own they were blue collar people that were grinders and they were about putting the work in and 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 see, were really even though they had been in the big leagues for maybe four or five years, they were seasoned veterans. Meanwhile the pitchers were just the opposite they were the kind of the entitled the beckets and the burnetts and the pennies and the pavanos and 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 and, and jack was real good at, at challenging them he left the position players alone a little bit, but he really challenged those pitchers. Like you haven't done anything yet. Dontrell Willis got called up that year and was dynamite. And when all of a sudden those guys were looking around, and there was a certain amount of uh, a certain amount of internal rivalry that was going on, that was really good. They pushed each other because they they all of a sudden they realized, hey, this this newcomer is outshining us all. And uh, and 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 Penny stepped up and Beckett certainly stepped up. Pavano had a good year and we really didn't have a number one that year, but we had a whole bunch of numbers, twos and threes. And then when you sit there and take a look at the bench players, um, they didn't necessarily play a lot, but they were they were all in. And that you know that's Mike Redman, Lenny Harris was a veteran that came in, um, Andy Fox was uh, uh, who's still you know on major league staff, Brian Banks who's a dentist in Arizona, and these guys they, they you know they might just play once a week or once every two weeks. Jack played those 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 blue collar every day guys. He played every day. And so these guys didn't necessarily get a lot of a lot of playing time or a lot of at bats. But when they played, they performed. Mike Mordecai is another one. You know, Mike Mordecai had three three walk off, you know, three walk off home runs and had the big uh, the big double off of uh, Farnsworth in the uh, in Chicago uh, off the wall that cleared the bases when we scored that eight eight spots, Uh, you know, and, and so. Uh, You know, we had Pudge Rodriguez behind the plate for just one year, but he was that he was the perfect guy for those young pitchers. So when you say what what made him special, it was, you know, the, the, the 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 everybody was pulling in the same direction and and it. Everybody just mixed and mashed. We, we talk about Juan Pierre, uh, the work ethic that he brought every day. He was brand new to the organization, but he was the first guy to the ballpark. You talk about Jeff Conine being added in, uh, after an injury at the end of August. And, and, and he was the guy that he had been there before, Mr. Marlin. He had been there before, and all of a sudden in September, he is just he's just, hey, putting guys on his shoulder and saying, I mean, level, even keeled as things got stressful. So it was just a wonderful thing. And Josh Beckett said it when we got into the playoffs. It was like, hey, we're young. We don't know any better. And there was a certain amount of truth to that, too. They were, they were young and they were having fun.
1: Yeah, I, I laugh because I heard the comment that, that Don Trell said the other day about, about Beckett. He said, people don't know that in game seven, the game that he threw a, a, a two-hit shutout or whatever was, he goes, before the game, he told Don Trell, get your measurement for your ring. I got this.
3: It, it, yeah, I tell you, he was
1: only, he, only Josh Beckett would say that, you know, I had him, you had him. It, it's just, his confidence was unbelievable.
2: Unbelievable. And, you know, and, and like a, he, he is, he, he was built and Jack and Jack knew that and recognized that, but he was built for that. Yeah. And Josh, Josh, Beckett was built for that moment. He did, you know, he, he thrived in that situation. He went on and did it in Boston. That didn't bother him. That's what. He, that's who he was. That's what he wanted to do. And he was young. And and you know, it was. There were very brash statements, but he backed them up one hundred percent.
1: Well, Sean, it's been about an hour or so. I guess we've we've had quite a talk with you. This has been great. I know the 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 people, the listeners, are going to have a lot of information to go over and I'm sure they'll listen to this podcast multiple times on some of your comments.
2: Well, good. Thank uh, again. I enjoyed, uh, enjoyed being on the show.
0: Well, you had a question way back. We didn't get to move to, did you want to revisit no, that?
3: It, it, it's a long rabbit hole. I've, I'm, I'm going to stay out of it so, since we're towards the end. It's, it, it's just, I can ask them off offline.
0: Oh, let's you, we get our listeners to do it. Throw, throw it, throw it at them.
3: Um, I, I just came back from our meetings in Denver uh, and Keith Duggar did a presentation. And with all the young pitchers in baseball and young pitchers around the game that are doing a lot of different things, uh, there's a new study that had just come out on thoracic outlet syndrome between Japanese baseball, and major league baseball, where there's a 1500% increase in surgeries for that because kids are on Online and with their head down and playing video games all the time and, and all the different training things and it's uh, kind of a scary thing that 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 because that's a very serious surgery as as we all know uh, that was I, I was shocked when I heard that um, had you heard any stuff on that Sean
2: Yeah I, I have you know Keith, Keith is a good friend of mine we worked the 2010 All Star Game together. And uh, and uh, he's a real good friend of mine and a peer. And and, and we've talked about it before, because, again, I'm I'm, you know, I'll go in and I'll see the Rockies here and there. So we, I always take that opportunity to catch up with them. Um, but th- but th- this is is one of the things that gets lost in, in what's happening. And that's that daily activities can influence. You know, I, I've, I've seen injuries where, you know, they're, you know, Nintendo thumb from, from playing their game station or whatever, you know, and, and, and you see that there's not a that repetitive action. Repetitive action can have long term implications. And exactly when, as they do these this studies and this research is that that's what you're seeing is that the, the amount of time that's being spent on gaming uh, is is causing long term ramifications for for professional athletes. Um, because it's it's creating uh, thickening and undue wear and tear on areas that never used to have uh, uh, that that volume of wear and tear.
3: Yeah, you know, Keith showed you know the the stance of all the young kids that we see with their head down and their thumbs and arms and wrists moving, but that's that that that's scary. You know, I'm sure a lot of parents are happy to hear it, whose kids <laughs> play too many video games that are baseball players that, hey, maybe maybe we need to limit some of our time gaming uh, because it could create a, a very serious thing. And the, the 1,500% increase in the last five years was a staggering number.
2: Yes.
0: Yes, it is. Well, I'm glad you asked that, Will. That was not one we wanted to save for off the air. That was good info. No, about- that was Great. So uh, this was great episode, guys. We appreciate you. Mark and Will, you always bring it. Sean, phenomenal job. Our, our audience definitely. We try to build a better baseball IQ out there, and you certainly did that with a couple exclamation points on us for us today. Uh, for our audience, this is Real Voices of the Game Productions, episode 103. We're with Wiley and Will, A Day at the Yard with Wiley and Will, Common Sense Pitching. Uh, guys, great episode. Again, we want to remind our audience, Apple, Amazon, Spotify, Stitcher, Please download, listen, like, and subscribe to support our guys here. You can also go on Patreon.com. and You can support them financially, uh, make a little donation. We try to keep it ad-free, and we try to keep it sponsor-free. That way it's straight content for our audience right here. We appreciate all 9,500 of you subscribers on 46 countries right now. We hope you continue to listen to what we're doing. Sean, thanks again for the time here today. You were phenomenal. Um, I know Palm Meach Atlantic is happy to have you. I'm sure you're enjoying the weather and the university down there. But we're in every Major League front office. I hope they're listening, too, because you should be with a Major League team right now.
2: Oh, thank you. I appreciate that.
0: Okay. Have a good day, guys. Great job. You, too.
2: Thanks, Sean. Thank Thanks you, guys.